Welcome to the RHA Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Julia Davison, Chief Executive Officer at Good Start Early Learning. Well, thanks again for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to bringing this conversation with Julia to you. I'd never met Julia prior to conducting this interview, but we spent well over an hour having a great conversation about her career and uh, some key learnings that she's had, particularly in relation to authentic leadership during her various iterations as CEOs of a variety of different industries. Before I get into the conversation with Julia, let me briefly introduce myself for those who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if we can assist you with any of your recruitment needs, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you about how we can help. Let me now introduce to you Julia Davison. Julia Davison was born in England and after having a year travelling and living and working in Germany after high school, she went to Durham University where she completed a Bachelor of Science with Honours, majoring in Geography. She then started her career in the health industry, working for the NHS in the UK. After working in that industry for many years, she took a one-year sabbatical and studied at the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government before moving with her Australian husband to Adelaide. She worked in the role of CEO at Flinders Medical Centre and then CEO at WorkCover South Australia before commencing her current role as Chief Executive Officer at Good Start Early Learning in Brisbane in February 2011. Julia lives in Brisbane with her husband. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Julia Davison. So, uh, Julia, uh, welcome to the Arate podcast. It's fantastic to have you along today on what's a fairly overcast uh, summer morning in uh, Brisbane, uh, Monday thank morning. You for in- thank you for inviting me. No, it's Richard. great. And uh, so I suppose just to begin with, perhaps if you could let the people who are listening know a little bit about what you're doing currently professionally. So I'm Chief Executive of Good Start Early Learning. Um, Good Start Early Learning is one of Australia's largest social enterprises. Mm-hmm. Um, we have over 650 early learning centres across the country. We operate in every single state um, and over 70,000 children. Wow. Um, and quite an interesting start to this business. Uh, perhaps talk to us a little bit about how it came to be uh, and uh, you know the evolution of it since then. Yeah. Well, we came out of ABC Learning, mm-hmm. um, I think, most listeners will recall ABC Learning um, went into receivership. Um, it was a crisis across Australia. Governments didn't know what to do. There were large numbers of families wondering what on earth was going to happen to mm. their childcare. Um, ABC at that time covered 15% of Australia's early learning and, and childcare. And of course, there were large numbers of people, large n- numbers of staff who were wondering what was going to happen to their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, an interesting conversation started between uh, Michael Trail, 
um, and a number of other people. Michael's my current um, chairman at the time. He was chief executive of Social Ventures Australia, Mm -hmm. where um, Evan Thornley, a former um, member of parliament from Victoria, called Michael and said, uh, what are you doing about ABC? And uh, Michael said, well, what what do you mean? And uh, Evan said, well, there's a tremendous opportunity here to buy ABC and do something very different with it mm-hmm. um, in the p- social purpose sector rather than in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the beginning. Um, and a syndicate came together. There were four syndicate members, Mission Australia, the Benevolent Society, the Brotherhood of St Lawrence um, and Social Ventures of, of, of Australia. Did I mention Oh, I just mentioned all four of them. Mission, the Brotherhood, the Benevolent Society and Social Ventures. Right, um, OK. And they um, they started thinking about the opportunity. Um, they worked with the private sector. They got um, pro bono, low bono due diligence done. Um, mm-hmm. Pro bono, low bono legal advice. I'm not familiar with low bono. What uh, does that means that mean? cheap. Like, <laughs> it doesn't cost very much. Like, right, okay. Um, uh, <laughs> Um, and they um, so much cheaper than, than right. a commercial entity would sure. normally would, no, would normally charge. Um, and um, they worked out that they thought it was a viable proposition right. to buy the early learning centres if they could run them as a not for profit. Mm-hmm. Um, they, however, weren't just interested in whether they would make sense financially. Mm-hmm. They were very interested in um, the deeper social purpose. So the question mm. about, well, if we were to acquire the childcare early learning centres, what would we do with them? And that, they had a, a, a deeply held belief mm-hmm. that the first five years are really, really important mm. um, and what happens then can make a huge, huge difference to children, um, their families and, and their lives and ultimately can make a difference to um, Australia's society mm. and economy. Okay. And that was in 2009, but you came into the role in 2011, is that right? I came in in 2011, yes. Right. So, so 2009 um, was very much the, uh, and 2010 was very much the transactional work. So uh-huh. the establishment of a new organisation, um, an organisation called Good Start Early mm-hmm. Learning, set up as a company limited by guarantee, mm-hmm. but with not-for-profit status. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the things that have to happen when you, um, purchase a company, so the transfer of employment, the transfer of all of the leases. We have all of our centres are on individual leases, so mm-hmm. that was a, a huge piece of work. So mm. when I arrived, um, the groundwork had been done to set up the organisation, uh, and our founders had a, a, a very, very clear view about the vision the vision being for all of Australia's children to have the best possible start in life so they didn't just see this as operating a set of Mm -hmm. early learning centres they had a view that with size comes responsibility Mm -hmm. and that if they were to establish uh, a new social enterprise that as well as supporting children and families in the good start centres and the organisation could also have a very important role in advocacy mm-hmm. and, and research and have broader and greater input mm. in, impact across the sector. Okay. And you mentioned uh, under the um, ABC model, 15% of children 
Uh, if you look now, what percentage would it be? Yeah, it's like all of these things. It depends what measure you use, whether okay. you use numbers of places or numbers of mm -hmm, children or mm -hmm. percentage of, of revenue. But we're between 10 and 15%. Right. Um, and we're, the, we're still the largest um, early learning and childcare Where would the, the um, number two sort of be in so, comparison? So, so G8, um, G8, okay. G8's been growing very, very rapidly. So mm -hmm. when we set off... Uh, we were much bigger than, than G8, but G8 um, would have over 400 services, right. uh, services okay. now, and, and they're, they're private for profit. Okay, great. Yeah. All right, well, we'll uh, certainly talk a lot more about uh, your role here uh, later in this conversation, but yeah. why don't we go back now to uh, you know, where you were born and your early life, yeah. mum and dad, etc. Tell us about that. So I was born in Sussex in the United Kingdom. Uh -huh. um, my parents, um, my mother was a primary school teacher, um, it's quite interesting. I've had conversations with her in um, recent years about children, children's development and her own um, uh, early, early education as I've become more interested um, in, the early, in the early years. Mm -hmm. um, and my father was a, uh, an executive in the coal industry, which at that, that time in the UK was, um, was a, a part of public service. So he, okay. ran, he ran Opencast coal mining but both my parents came from I think what can only be described as um, working class backgrounds mm -hmm. my father my father was the first in his family to go to university okay um, and he only did that after having left school gone got a job as a clerk he got TB and um, okay. ended up in an open-air hospital um, for two years mm -hmm. and that's where he met more ed some more educated people where mm -hmm. he started to read um, and then he went um, from there to the London School of Economics and did an economics um, degree at the age of 25. Right, so, okay. Um, uh, and that that really, looking back, you know, that had a great impact on me because um, my parents were not particularly tolerant um, during my schooling of, you know, any moaning about how much work or, you know, this is hard or whatever, because they both had a view that, um, uh, and my mother likewise, um, she didn't go to university, went to teacher training college, but she was the first in her family to get um, ter tertiary ed education. Okay. Um, and so they both very much had a view of myself and my sister that we didn't know how lucky we were that, um, uh, you know, we were supported during our schooling right. and, and our education, whereas they had both, you know, done it in their, in, in their, in their spare time mm -hmm. and, and without any role models. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned one sister, so that was your only sibling? Yeah, yeah okay. I've just got one sister. She's right. younger than me. Okay, yeah. right. Yeah. And so um, uh, uh, obviously you went to school and then mm -hmm. so how did things uh, unfold from there? So I went to, and it's interesting looking back, um, I went to what was called a comprehensive school in the UK. Right. Um, it was at the time when grammar schools had been merged with secondary modern schools and this was one of the first comprehensives so um, prior to that for those people not familiar with the English school system you had to do an exam at the age of 11 called the 11 plus um, and then you either went to the more academic stream which was mm -hmm. the grammar school or the less academic uh, stream that was the, the secondary modern um, stream. Um, but both uh, in the public system, not private. In the public system. Right. My parents had very strong views. They didn't um, support private education. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, whilst they probably could have afforded to send myself and my sister to private school, um, they had a very strong value base uh, around 
um, equity of access to okay. education. Okay. Um, and uh, and it's it, it, it's interesting when I think about you know what we're trying to do at Good mm -hmm. Start in terms of ensuring that that all children get the best possible start in life. You mm -hmm. know, to think about just some of their their views at at, at that time. Sure. And um, and so you mentioned this was a a school that encompassed both the traditional models. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there were children from all different all different backgrounds okay. at, at at my at my school, and right. it was you know again. If I if I look back, I think it was um, quite instrumental um, in terms of helping me feel comfortable mixing with a whole range of uh, of different people, which okay. is one of the things I've done during right. my life. Okay, yeah. sure. And so that was high school. Yeah. And then what happened after the high school? Um, then I got a place at Durham University in the north of England. Mm -hmm. um, uh, people often. You know, later in life, said to me, "Why didn't you apply to go to Oxford or Cambridge, Julia?" And um, I say to them, "Well, nobody did at my school. It wasn't a school um, where people stayed on and did the Oxbridge exams, and it wasn't a school that had tutoring." Um, so I went to Durham, um, uh, and I had a place at Durham. Uh, however, about three or four weeks before I was about to go to Durham, I decided that I would take a year off and I would go. Travelling, um, uh, my parents at the time were absolutely horrified and right. thought I was going to chuck in my university degree. But uh, they don't remember that. I remember them years later talking about, you know, how they encouraged me to go travelling and okay. and, uh, <laughs> uh, and learn another language. Right. Um, but I, yeah, I put my university place on hold and I went and worked. I went to an au pair actually in right. um, uh, in Germany, um, which again is interesting for me when I think about the. You know, unregulated early childhood sec sector and some of the challenges um, and safety issues that come with that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so, um, was uh, Germany a specific choice in that you wanted particularly to go there, or was that just where the opportunity was? Oh, it was partly where the opportunity was. I'd learnt um, both French and German at at, at school, um, and I decided that I uh, wanted to strengthen. One of those languages, and in fact, during my summer work, um, I was working doing waitressing, um, uh, and there were a number of uh, young women that I was working with who were, you know, from other parts of Europe who were um, were working with me, and that I, I think that's what really gave me the idea. I actually thought, well, hang on, they're over here having a good time. You know, perhaps I'll go and do something like mm -hmm. this rather than. Um, go straight to university. Right. Yeah. So um, you had a, a whole year out, you were yeah. working as an au pair yeah. in Germany, yeah. and then came back to the original degree that you'd... Uh, I did, yeah, yeah, I did. Right. I did. Um, and um, I had to sign something with Durham to say that I promised during my year out I wouldn't do the Oxford and Cambridge exams, but given that I had absolutely no intention of doing them, that was... Why? Because uh, they worried about losing um, the... Yeah, they, they, that was wow. obviously part of their, you know, their admissions... Um, Procedures, but I I, um, I then went up up to Durham, which is in the north of um, England, um, and a beautiful city, uh, mm -hmm. a beautiful city, but a city that is very much dominated by the university. So right. a, a small city. Okay. Yeah. And how long were you there for? Uh, I was there for three years. Right. Um, I did a science degree, um, but um, my degree was. Uh, a, a geography degree oh, right. um, and I 
Um, I chose geography um, because, if I'm completely honest, honest with you, I like the I, I like the idea of going and doing an overseas field trip. Okay. So there was no <laughs> real. Uh, I remember sitting there. I was, shall I do medicine or shall I do geography? Right. And um, and I can remember my school saying to me, look, you can't really put an application in for sort of mixed you know, medicine and geography, because people would think you don't care about medicine. And I remember thinking, oh, but, you know, perhaps I'd prefer to go and do, do something else. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure. And I, um, at, at, at the time, and I think it still is so in the UK, much more so than it is here, lots of people do um, general type, type degrees that are right. not necessarily, you know, career mm-hmm. specific, and then go and um, do postgraduate study whether it be in law or um or go and join graduate training programs with the big employers and it, mm-hmm. it, I, I, I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do but I sort of had in my head oh I'll go and I'll do a graduate training program with a big employer you know and, mm-hmm. um, and a good university and a, a, a general degree is a, a good pathway for doing that. And so in the three years you were predominantly focused yeah. on geography, yeah. you know, in terms of that's the qualification you wanted to exit with. Did, did you get a sense that you actually wanted to pursue a career in that space? or No, not? I never did. And one of the reasons I, I liked geography was, it was a, for me, it was a good mix of arts and sciences. Mm-hmm. And I've always been someone who has never been able to choose between arts and, right. and, and, and sciences. Um, so, um, uh, but I, I never had any intention of staying in academia. I mm-hmm. wasn't particularly interested in, you know, some of the role, the more common roles that people went to at, at that point from geography, whether it be, you know, town planning or things like that. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I had a view that um, I wanted to go and join a big organisation and, um, uh, and see, you know, what opportunities mm-hmm. that 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 gave me, and I, and I didn't really know what type of organisation. Um, the year before I graduated, um, Marks and Spencer's, the big retail mm-hmm. chain in the UK, um, had a program that they'd introduced. They were um, losing their graduate trainees. Trainees, I think, they had something like a thirty. 30% turnover and, and they decided that a good thing to do would be to employ people the summer before and mm-hmm. um, pay them to come and work with them for uh, a couple of months and then um, uh, for there to be sort of, you know, um, to give people a greater insight as to whether it was something that, that mm-hmm. they wanted to do in it. And it definitely gave me a greater, a, a great insight. I mean, it, it was seen to be one of the top graduate training schemes at that, that, that point in time. But um, I can remember you know, spending time in a Marks and Spencer shop, having to, you know, recount how many pairs of a particular brand of socks had been, you know, sold right. the same week the previous year and thinking, uh, this absolutely isn't for me. Um, and um, uh, and that's probably when I started thinking about, I'd like to do something that I felt had a, a deeper purpose. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, if you think now, if somebody had the uh, the grades that would allow them to be accepted into medicine, and they yeah. chose to pursue, you know, a, a broader generalist degree, you know, people would say you're crazy. You know, that's where the money is. But obviously, it's never really been. Well, know, and, and I think, and I think, you. perhaps a bit less so in the UK because. Um, uh, 
you needed the same grades to go to Durham that you needed to get to do medicine. Right, um, okay. You know, so Durham's mm-hmm. was then and still is one of the top universities sure. in, 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 in the UK. Okay. Um, so, um, but yes, geography. I mean, would I would I recommend to someone that they do that they do a geography degree now? Um, in the UK, I would. And mm. in fact, um, some good friends of mine's son is just about to go and do geography um, at at Durham because I think in the UK, people are still seeing the value of a a good high quality um, generalist mm-hmm. degree um, and it's interesting I think you know as you look at, at the skills of the future workforce in Australia and as we look at what's actually happening with the world content knowledge is becoming you know less and less mm-hmm. important and um, you know technology robotics you know what what we may well see ourselves actually going back round in that in that circle here where we feel it's less important, you know, to start off doing something that is a very, very technical degree and um, more important to do something that, that's a, a broader, mm. more, more rounded degree. Yeah, yeah. look, uh, I mean, fundamentally, yeah. in 1900, the average life expectancy in Australia for a white yeah. um, uh, person was 55. You know, a uh, hundred years later, or a bit over a hundred years later, yeah. it's probably, you know, in our 90s. Yeah. So, and yet a lot of the same traditional paradigms around go to school pick your you know your career get the requisite um, education hasn't changed so much and yet our lifespans are so significantly different so I imagine there's going to be quite a significant shift in terms of how people view education and 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 creating the necessary skills to enable them to have you know fulfilling lives for a lot longer than was in in the past yeah yeah, yeah. and and so and then you exit university you have the opportunity to go and do a um, graduate program with one of the leading um, organizations and you made a different choice so uh, obviously that says something about you in terms of your own uh, orientation of perhaps taking the path less travel yeah so I so I, I applied for the National Health Service um, graduate training scheme um, and I um, went to work for the NHS um, the NHS is, is an absolutely huge employer mm-hmm. um, in the UK and I, I, I probably thought I, I don't know what I thought I, I somehow thought oh I'll, you know I'll go and work in hospital management and that'll be good because I'll be doing good things and then um, you know I found myself in the middle of industrial action crossing picket lines in the Thatcher <laughs> years and closing down hospitals so right. um which probably wasn't quite what 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 I'd um had in mind mm-hmm. um but it was uh it was a really good experience for me um both in my early career um uh but also you know in in the um you know what well, perhaps what I call the first the first half of my career I mean mm-hmm. one thing about one of the things about the National Health Service was um you know unlike Marks and Spencer's there weren't the sorts of manuals and guides and the you know here are the questions to ask at the interview or you know this is how to mm-hmm. display your um set of towels it was very much sort of make it up as you as you went along I had a huge amount of responsibility very early on I found myself as I said in the middle of industrial um disputes and 
Uh, and at the time we had no sort of qualified human resources team or anything mm -hmm. at the hospital where I worked so I, I went off and did postgraduate study um, and did my membership with the Institute of Personnel and Development so at least I could understand mm -hmm. whether a picket line was or wasn't legal right. you know, like, so, um, so what was the uh, actual title of your day job so to speak? Uh, so I was assistant administrator okay. um, assistant hospital administrator and there was mm -hmm. a team um, there was a team of three of us um, uh, um, an assistant, a deputy and a hospital administrator but that was okay. after having done a, an intensive graduate training scheme and, mm -hmm. um, and again it's something I often look back on the first three months of the graduate training scheme that I, I did were literally just shadowing people so mm -hmm. I spent a week um, sifting through filthy laundry you know, on a conveyor belt in a hospital laundry I spent a couple of nights shadowing a junior doctor so that every time they got called up and you know had to get up in the middle of the night I got up with them and and mm -hmm. um, went to whatever they were going to do I spent a week with a GP I spent time out with a district nurse I spent time with a um, in, you know the whole range of health professionals I've spent time in a mental health service I right. remember being in a very challenging community situation with a mental health nurse in someone's house in a tough suburb in Birmingham um, but uh, we were really immersed mm -hmm. in you know in the services um, for three months mm -hmm. which you know you could say is a luxury um, but I think it was a great piece of design of the program because mm -hmm. it gave you you know really good insight into people's lives the lives of people who were working you know in the, the services in the hospitals in in the community mm -hmm. um, and what the work, work really meant you know the the ups and the downs mm -hmm. yeah. okay and um, and then you continued to work in national health for some time yeah, uh, and I so did. Uh, at what point did you decide that it was time to consider you know other careers and um, well I I I probably saw myself as staying in health. When I first started working in health, I, I, I didn't. I sort mm -hmm. of had a view that it was something I would do for a few years and then I would look and see whatever else there was to, to do. And mm -hmm. um, at one time when I um, had got involved in industrial relations, I did think about perhaps I, I would leave the sector and go and work in the... I was working in Birmingham, so the car industry was big there, and go and work in industrial relations in the car industry. The, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, I don't think that's really what, what I want to do. Just Because of um, uh, the desire to work in IR or the car industry specifically? Uh, I think probably both, actually. Okay. I think I... Um, and then, of course, what happened, there were just so many opportunities for me, for me with, with within health. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, at the time, it, it didn't feel like luck, um, but I had two things happened one um, a boss of mine got the sack mm -hmm. uh, so I was immediately thrown in he was there one day gone the next right. so I was immediately thrown in um, into his role um, definitely not lucky uh, for him absolutely <laughs> not lucky for him um, uh, but it was a it was a hospital administrator job in Manchester um, it was you know, would have been far too senior job for me to have even considered mm -hmm. applying for. But I was the only person, I was sort of last man standing, right. the only person there, you know. And the um, the finance director from the group of hospitals sort of gave me a bit of, of, of help. Um, and then um, I also had a situation, and in fact the other one was be before that, where... Um, 
where one of my colleagues, more senior colleague than mine, unfortunately had mental health issues, so um, was out of the workforce for mm-hmm. a significant amount of time. So I had two periods where I was sort of forced to step up, mm-hmm. um, and, and that really that really increased my confidence. That okay. actually made me realise that I I can actually, even though I might have thought I couldn't do some of this work, I could actually mm-hmm. do it, and I and I didn't have to do it in the same way that other people did it. I could do it in mm-hmm. my my own way. And what do you think was some of the attributes you were demonstrating at that point that gave them the confidence to open these opportunities up for you? I mean, it's not just where you're the only person here because uh, there must have been uh, certain skills you were developing that gave them a trust that you could handle those responsibilities. Oh, look, I was, I was very committed. I think I, um, I think people would have known that I would have. Um, spoken up if there was something that I didn't think I could handle mm-hmm. um, uh, but I was also I was pretty resilient and and and, and prepared to to give it you okay. know to give it to give it to give it a go and right. um, and um, I um, and I probably you know at the time people probably would have said to me that I had very good you know relationships with people at 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 all levels so you know in the hospital i i got on well with whether it was the cleaner or whether it was the you know professor of mm-hmm. of, of, of of surgery okay yeah. and so what then happened to uh, eventually lead you to a decision to leave to leave so um so i as i said i i was was quite happy in um working in health um and uh, I moved up to, you know, very senior job in the National Health Service in the UK, where I was deputy chief executive of a group of hospitals in in London, um, St Bartholomew's, the Royal London Hospital, and a number mm. of other hospitals in the group. So one of the biggest groups, um, uh, where we had, um, and we were always doing you know, new new things, whether it was new things in terms of. Um, medical treatments or technology or new things in terms of, of policy. Um, I worked on one of the first public-private partnerships um, in hospital redesign and, and development um, in in the UK, and that was a, a great eye-opener for me, actually working much more closely with the private sector. Um, and at the time, hospitals in the UK were becoming um, much more, much, much more autonomous um, had a shock when I when I moved over over, over here, um, but my husband, um, who's Australian um, uh, and had been living in the UK for ten years, um, sort of had a view. Um, it's time to go back to Australia. The weather okay. really got to him in right. the winter, so the short days. Um, I remember once he said to me, I feel like a pit pony, Julia. It's dark when I go to work and it's dark when I come <laughs> home. And I said to him, look, I'll get you a referral to the Maudsley Hospital. They've actually got a, a, um, a light box where people are suffering from seasonally adjustive disorder can go and sit in it. And I remember as I was saying it to him thinking, no, she shouldn't come to this. Right. He was saying to my husband, I'll get him a referral to a psychiatric hospital. Um, I was half in jest. Um, right. But perhaps it is time to, to, to move back to Australia. Um, so we started talking about moving back to Australia. Um, and Mark, who was working for EDS at, at the time, then got offered a role in the, the US. Um, and I thought, uh, what am I going to do in the US? Right. My sister had been in the US 
um, with her husband and she'd been unable to get a, a work visa. What career was she working uh, in? She, at the time, um, was working... At that time, she was working in housing. Okay. Um, uh, and she went to the US and she, um, she volunteered um, for for a year um, so I remember thinking what on earth am I going to do in the US but perhaps it is time to go somewhere else so I'd been fortunate enough to be on um, a women's leadership program where I'd been with a number of, of women from the the US and um, we'd spent a week at Harvard and okay. at the time I'd been quite interested in some of their programs so I thought I know I could take a year I could go and do the mid-career program at the Kennedy School, um, mm -hmm. which I applied for, um, uh, got a place on, and then my husband got a job in Australia rather than the US. So, <laughs> uh, so that was a, that was an interesting, an interesting time for us. Um, we don't have children, so I think that probably made the made it easier to to juggle mm -hmm. the various things we we juggled. So. Um, I decided to still go to Harvard. Mark negotiated with his employer um, to spend a reasonable amount of time in the US during the year, um, and they actually paid to fly me back to Australia during the year twice, okay. which was um, which was good. So we we uh, we made that work. Um, and where was he based in Australia? In in Adelaide, which right. again was my view that that was the back of beyond um, sure. if I'm being honest um, and that's where Mark and his family came from I sort of had okay. a view well that's a nice place to go on holiday um, but um, it's not really where you would mm -hmm. you know want to go and live but EDS at that at that time had their um, Australasian headquarters there and right. they wanted to bring him back okay and uh, to work there people yeah. are obviously familiar with Harvard but Kennedy is a slightly different um, yeah uh, so perhaps uh, talk us through exactly what uh, Kennedy and offers. So the the Kennedy School is um, is a school of public and social policy, and mm -hmm. um, so it the people that go and study there work um, either work directly in the public or social sector, or they are advisors to it, or they work. Um, in government or government-related okay. entities. So there are people there who are politicians, there are people who are, you know, run um, uh, election campaigns. I had someone from the, you know, Clinton um, bill, not Hillary, right. um, team um, uh, on my programme, people who are diplomats mm -hmm. from different countries, uh, people who are doing aid and development um, work uh, over the... Uh, around the world so an amazing amazing um course the people from 65 different countries on the mid-career masters that mm -hmm. that that i did with all different backgrounds in an age range um between 30 and 65 and they um, actually referred to it as a mid-career yeah they do it's a mid-career right. and you can basically make up your own masters you select um modules yeah. from the Kennedy School from any of the Harvard graduate schools mm -hmm. so I did some stuff at the law school the medical school and the business school okay. um, and from other universities that they have a, arrangements with so I did something at MIT um, there were people who did things in diplomacy um, and overseas developments at Tufts so um, yeah, a great opportunity, a, a wonderful opportunity. And yeah. then when that was done, off to Adelaide. Well, then what? Yeah, and that's so. You, um, and I, I, I did have a. So my points about talking about my masters was that that was probably the time at which my thinking shifted in terms of there are, are actually lots of other different sectors or areas I could work in, mm -hmm. um, that 
could be quite interesting. And I started being thinking about not for profits. Um, but I got recruited to go and be chief executive of Flinders Medical Centre in, in South Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was very excited about that. It wasn't second choice to me. I hadn't actually been a chief executive in mm-hmm. health. So I'd done, you know, lots of jobs, but I'd not been a chief executive of, a, of an entity. And, um, uh, and Flinders is a very special hospital and a very special place. And... Some years before, I had done a job exchange to Adelaide um, uh, when I was working in health, which was when I met Mark, my husband, and I had actually spent um, uh, um, some time at at Flinders Medical Centre, so it was was good to to go and work there. And when you were thinking about stepping into your first role as a CEO, um, no doubt you did some kind of uh, consideration about where are my skills and where are my weaknesses that I really need to develop in order to you know, make yeah. a fist of this opportunity. Yeah. What were some of the things that were on your mind? Well, I did that when I was, um, when I was at Harvard, actually, because I actually thought if I'm going to take a year out, I'm going to make sure that I spend time on things that I think... Um, I want to strengthen. It would have been very easy just to pick all the courses that I've fancied that looked, you know, fun. Um, But I made myself do um, an information technology course. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it was, you know, designed for for leaders. Um, But it was absolutely not a space I felt comfortable in and Mm -hmm. and not particularly a, um, a, a topic I... I wanted to study so I made myself do that and I made myself go and do um, corporate finance um, and investment at the business school Um, and um, uh, did I enjoy having to dig out and remind myself how to do calculus because I thought well you know why on earth would anyone need to do this but um, uh, not particularly Um, but I I'm glad I I did those courses as well as doing things that I was interested in, like you know, comparative health policy, comparative um, health um, technology and leadership. Um, I did a, a a program at Harvard that will stay with me for the whole of my career. I did Ronald Heifetz's adaptive leadership okay. um, program. I don't know if you're no, familiar. Um, so. Um, you know, when people ask me, you know, what are the books you've read over your life or career that have had the biggest impacts um, on you? Ronald Heifetz's Leadership Without Easy Answers and his more recent books on um, adaptive leadership are, are absolutely, you know, the books. Um, you might be familiar with the, the social leadership program that the Benevolent Society yes, runs. and in uh, Brisbane and, and, and Sydney, that's based on um, uh, adaptive leadership and, and High Fitz's work. Right. There's a whole movement around it and okay. a whole whole range of people who, who who train on it. Yes. Um, so so that's um, yeah that. So what was that your biggest takeaway from that? Oh, it's a, it's a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a number of concepts. Um, you know, the first, the, the whole concept of leading with or without authority. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you have a position of authority does not mean you're a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you don't have a position of authority doesn't mean that you can't mm, lead. Right. Um, 
the second um, you know big big takeaway from from the work is the the whole concept of being um, on the dance floor and up on the on the balcony so to to be able to shift um, uh, you know people use the term helicopter um, yeah. you know up and down but to not just to look but to actually see and feel what's happening from those different right. from those different mm. different spaces um, and then you know probably the third um, deep concept is that of holding environments that actually um, real change is is actually very very hard so if people aren't anxious or if it's not feeling tough or you're probably just tinkering around the edges that mm-hmm. it's actually not real deep change um, but that you have to create a holding environment that allows you know that to happen without mayhem or or, or sort of chaos and mm-hmm. he sort of uses that pressure cooker right. example of like turning it up you know but not just knowing when it's going to, you know, mm-hmm. explode or, 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 or boil okay. up. But the stacks, you know, I could, I could talk right. about hours. But and I so uh, yeah. you, through the balance of your career since then, you've, um, uh, you've gone back to those learnings. Uh, yeah, no, I have re- gone back to his right. work. Yeah, and, at the, and it's interesting. At the time, I, I wouldn't necessarily... I, I wouldn't have said at the time, this is the best thing I've, I've ever, ever done. It was mm-hmm. a an uncomfortable experience and right. um, the, the whole concept around the whole theme around learning through failure so you just have to continually share mm-hmm. stories of, of, of failure um, a, a very much a group learning approach that mixes people up with different skills and you know and a, a experience um, uh, and you know some of my um, my peers who were studying that group uh, didn't like the and the people from all the Harvard graduate schools to do it didn't like the idea that they were mixed up you know with undergraduates who've got no management or leadership mm-hmm. experience um, as well as with um, you know people with 30 50 years of um, of ex- experience but it's a sort of view about you know you you, you learn from other people mm. um, and um, and a whole piece about you know, understanding dynamics of systems and what role you're playing in a okay. system at a whole range of different levels. He, he's actually um, a psychiatrist by original right. training, wow. so, which gives you a bit of a bit of a feel, yeah, a bit of a feel. But um, in fact, you were asking me about why I moved from health and I've, I've gone back to Harvard and then I came back to... So I, I, when I came to Australia, I, I um, did my role at... At, at Flinders Medical Centre, and I did that for, for six years. Yeah. Um, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I wasn't particularly looking mm-hmm. to move out of health um, until a headhunter called me and a recruiter. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> and um, uh, and in fact, two. One called me about was I interested in going and um, heading up one of the health districts in Victoria, and the uh, and just as I was sort of having conversations. 
about that and talk to my husband about is it time to move to Melbourne and by this stage I'd sort of adapted to Adelaide instead of thinking it was yeah so instead of thinking it was the back of the beyond and why would anyone want to live there I thought my goodness it's an amazing place fantastic food fantastic wine cheap housing you know um, uh, everyone knows everyone which when I first got there I found a bit uncomfortable that Mm -hmm. somehow everyone seemed to know everyone but then after being there for a bit I thought that's oh, great. You can get things done. You can find someone who knows someone who knows someone else. And, yeah. um, and um, but I suppose in my heart of hearts, I knew that there wasn't really anywhere to go career-wise. Mm-hmm. My husband once said to me, "If I, if I ever thought of being the head of the departments of health in government, that he put me in the bit of the car and drive <laughs> me away as far as possible." Um, and you know, and the politics of doing yeah. that, of, of doing those jobs, um, right. being a hospital chief executive and being a head of a government department, as as you know, and many listeners will know, you know, it can, it can be, sure. be be tough. And um, uh, so I didn't really have any aspirations to do anything else in um, uh, in, in the health department um, and just as I was considering going to um, whether or not to move um, to uh, to Victoria uh, and Mark and I were talking about you know our respective careers mm-hmm. and how they they fit together he'd actually just bought a vineyard um, okay. in the Barossa so he was quite well you know, um, placed and happy to stay um, in and his Australia. his intention was to do that full-time? or that was uh, He was doing that part-time and he was doing uh, consulting, so he sort of had quite a portfolio right. ca- career career by then. Okay. Um, he's also got a PhD in psychology, lots uh-huh. of people's. Um, uh, and so he was doing a, a, a range of things. And, and then a recruiter called me um, about going to work at WorkCover in South Australia. And if I'm being honest... I, having not grown up with workers' compensation systems or work mm-hmm. cover systems, I didn't really know, you know, what it was or, or, or what mm-hmm. the job was. Um, but she was a very, very skilled recruiter. Mm-hmm. Um, and she um, she basically said to me, if you're going to, if you want to stay in health for the rest of your life, then fine. But if you don't, if you want to move, if you don't move now, you know, you're, at a, you're sort of pivotal pivotal point and you'll mm. be labelled as someone who's going only can do health mm. but this is actually a great transition for you because you can bring all of your health and um, you know uh, uh, you know wellness recovery sort of expertise and your knowledge of the medical system to the role and uh, but it's actually it's a different job and it's you know, more commercial in that it's a um, an insurance system. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a, a board that's half commercial, half not commercial, and it's in a complete mess, uh, and it needs a complete turnaround. Um, and um, and I talked to a few people, and I thought, oh, this sounds really, really interesting. Right. Um, and. I went for it and I got the job. Um, I had no idea how tough that job was going to be right. when I took the job. I had no. I thought it was, uh, you know, shifting the culture. You know, trying to to focus on the positives. Um, you know, encouraging people to return to work. How hard can it can it mm-hmm. be? And then, as I got into the role and as I talked to former colleagues of mine in health and other people across the state, I actually realised that the system was fundamentally flawed and that the legislative framework in South Australia did not support and encourage return to work, unlike Mm -hmm. here in Queensland where, um, you know, at at that 
time um, in the scheme, and that there still is. There was, um, you know, you couldn't actually stay on the stay on the scheme for more than two years. In South mm -hmm. Australia, you could stay on as long as you wanted right. if your doctor was signing you um, uh, signing you off. Mm -hmm. um, and there were no um, peer review, re review panels in the same way there was in Victoria, peer medical review panels. So you could stay on as long as your doctor was signing you off. If your doctor stopped signing you off, you could just go and find another doctor uh, right. who signed you off. So and it could easily so, be rotted. Um, and our scheme was... This, and the scheme finances were just blowing out, blowing out, and um, uh, and they were putting the um, state's AAA rating at risk. So my chairman, a man called Bruce Carter, and I, we, we got stuck into sorting it out, which required legislative reform, um, which um, uh, was obviously not necessarily supported by the unions uh, was not necessarily also supported by employers because employers thought we weren't going hard enough unions mm -hmm. thought we were going too hard right. you know um, uh, but we did it um, and that taught me an awful lot about advocacy influence and some and I, I studied mm -hmm. some of those things when I was at Harvard because I was very much interested in you know how do you influence public policy how do you get a movement going um, but um, that gave me a much, much deeper insight into not just politics, but what I knew about how we don't live in a rational world, and and also about how the um, how the Australian um, government um, works, how state mm -hmm. governments work, and how federal governments mm -hmm. work in their respective roles. Right. And so you were there in that role for six years and uh, being a bit cognizant of time. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And so um, at the top, uh, you obviously had a tremendous challenge to overcome there. Yeah. Did, did it get to the point where you felt, well, I've, I've done what I needed to do, it's time to go? And when I went to Harvard and took, took a, year, a year out, when I'd finished my year out, and I worked really hard when I was there, but I just felt so refreshed and re-energised at the end of the year. And I said to myself then... Every five years, I'm going to take a, a year out. Right. Um, I didn't feel burnt out when I mm -hmm. went to Harvard. Um, uh, but having spent a year doing something completely different, reading, reflecting, I just realised how much you just get sucked into um, you know, the day-to-day -day life of, of an e executive. Mm. Um, I then didn't stick with my own advice, so I went straight from the job at the hospital, which, which was a tough job that I did for, for six years, yeah. and uh, into my work cover job. I have a view, by the way, that you can't do a chief executive job for less than five years, you right. know, if you're just going for a you can go in and do stuff, mm. but if you actually really want to 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 change an organisation, shape an organisation, work with the people to move it to another place, you know, it's a five year minimum mm -hmm. um, minimum piece. So, so I'd always intended, you know, when I went to work cover, you know, I wasn't going to leave after a year or, mm -hmm. or, or, or two, two years. There were probably times when I felt like it, if I'm being honest <laughs> about it. Um, uh, um, but um, I, I'd, I'd got a mental commitment for, for five years. Then my mm -hmm. chairman left. Um, and when he left, he said to me, oh, by the way, you know, I'm going, uh, so you can't leave for the next 12 months. Right. And I'm like, sorry. And he's like, well, you know, we can't have a chair and a chief executive both leaving, at this. which again, I, I think is, you know, is mm. sort of sound advice. So I thought, okay, I've got to stay for um, another year. But I'd always had in my head um, that I, uh, and definitely towards towards the end of that, that period, probably 
two years before I I left that uh, I wasn't going to go and do another chief executive job just straight after having done two big jobs but I was actually going to take some um, some time out and I got in my head that um, I would take a year um, right. um, and so um, so I managed um, nine months actually um, and I say six months into the year um, uh, I got the call about the good start job mm-hmm. um, and I was ju- I just got into a space where I was thinking if someone calls me about a job then I won't go no 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 I'm taking a year off I because I was thinking well and by that stage I was thinking I want to go and do another chief mm. executive job a, uh, a few months beforehand I was shall I do a portfolio career shall I mm-hmm. you know and then I'd um I got. A, I was appointed to the board of the of the um, TIO. I chaired the board of a not for profit. So I was sort of doing that during my year off. But for me, at that time in my career, I was pretty clear that I, whilst I liked board work, um, I, I actually preferred sort of getting stuck in yeah. at the executive um, uh, at the executive level so um, so when I got the call about this job so I you was were in- headhunted for this role as well yeah. So, how, why do you think you were on the radar? I mean, well, that, so this is an interesting one, and this is just by chance. So, this mm-hmm. is by chance. I wasn't on the radar. So, um, a good friend and um, former colleague of mine who had previously been chief executive um, uh, at um, the Children's Hospital in Melbourne um, and was chief executive of Melbourne City Council got called mm-hmm. um, and she would have been on the radar she's a very strong you know leader and a fabulous woman but B um, uh, they were looking for someone who could do advocacy influence government and had had something to do with children mm-hmm. so um, you know they were looking in health and they were look and they were looking in education um, uh, and um, she wasn't looking to go anywhere and, you know, said to the recruiter, as you do, you know, Richard, you're a recruiter, you know, I'm not, uh, no, I'm not interested. And the recruiter said, as no doubt, you always, you yep. would often say, or would you know anyone who you think? Birds of a feather flock together. <laughs> who do you know? Would you, would you know anyone who you think might be interested? Right. And she said, oh, you could call Julia. Right. You know, she, um, uh, and, and I spent part of my career in children's hospitals in, mm-hmm. the, in, in the UK. Um and obviously have done lots of influencing policy work yeah. um, over my career and, you know, had an interest in it in terms of my, my work at, at Harvard. So whilst I didn't have a, a background in um, in early years education, I had a background in early years health. I'd worked with families during my time in health. I've worked in communities, in mm-hmm. community um, health. I'd done, you know, quite a lot of organisational change and I'd done things at scale and I think that was one of the real challenges for the recruiters for this job um, because you'll know from your work in the not-for-profit sector in the social sector um, that um, not much of it is at scale so um, government departments are at scale but you you're not managing a balance sheet if you're Mm -hmm. you know a government um, department you're managing big budgets Mm -hmm. and 
um, and um, but actual systems and organisations. Um, you know, we've got we've got nearly fifteen thousand employees here. We've got a billion dollar turnover. We're mm-hmm. actually a big organisation sure. here at, 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 at Good Start, um, and um, yes. Yeah, so I, I I was intrigued, and so I I was intrigued firstly about the collapse of ABC and the idea of going into what was, in inverted commas, a failed private mm-hmm. sector organisation and, and turning it into a successful social enterprise. So mm-hmm. that that intrigued me from a um, sort of leadership organisation um, point of view. Um, but I was, I was deeply motivated when I started reading the research around the early years and the early years and early years education and I and I hadn't realised that I can honestly say I, I did not know this I had not realised I knew the early years were important mm-hmm. you know but I didn't know that between 80 and 90 percent of brain development actually happens mm. uh, in those very early years not just the year before school I didn't understand the neuroscience I didn't actually you know uh, know that um, in those early foundations for life, um, in particular in areas such as self-regulation and speech and language, are really established in the early years. Mm-hmm. That by the age of three, there's a 30 million, you know, word gap between mm-hmm. children um, from and the, the researchers call them um, welfare families and professional uh, families. The American um, researchers and I started to think my goodness there is just such an opportunity here you know with um, evidence informed high quality early learning and of course my background in health you know meant that I was um, I'd grown up in a uh, an, an era around um, well we can't just say doctor knows best you know it's time to start having more evidence informed practice it's start it's time to actually you know ensure peer review that people and um, so that was my sort of whole time in health which was around evidence informed practice and uh, a view that we have a social and moral responsibility not just to let professionals just go off and do you know their their own Thing. Not to say that professionals don't do amazing work, um, but you know, um, and it's through peer review and peer, peer support that we get evidence-informed guidelines. And I started thinking, um, there's a tremendous opportunity here in the early years, and there's a tremendous opportunity with an organisation like Good Start because you're potentially unencumbered by things like, you know government ministers and advisors and people who are risk averse and you know which of course a lot of my time in the um in the health system in um uh in australia had um been working under that regime which is one of the reasons i like work cover because it was a statute arm's length statutory uh, authority and i had much more freedom to do the things that that i i wanted to do um but i I, I really started seeing the opportunity and then mm-hmm. when I talked to the people, you know, the board members and the um, founding members, I thought they have got this tremendous vision and and a deep, deep, deep commitment to, to purpose. Now, mm-hmm. of course, at the same time, no money, no mission yes. and more money, more mission. So, you know, we've mm-hmm. got to get the thing... Um, 
uh, up running stable um, and um, but there's an opportunity here to do things that will support all children and families but also to do something that in particular can support the most disadvantaged mm-hmm. um, which is one of the things that drives me and one of the things mm. that, that, that drives our board and, and, and that um, that's part of who we are here at, here sure. at Good Start. And so on the cusp of six years in a row, yeah. uh, which is past your five-year yeah, yeah, time, is, yeah, you know, yeah. if you look over that Gosh, period, sort of, yeah, what, what, what are some of the things that have, you've achieved in the role that you're most proud of? So, um, I know that it's, it's, it's we, it's not, it's not I. Um, uh, you know, we've got, we've got tremendous educators here at Good Start and, um, you know, amazing centre directors who who just work tirelessly to support the families and and children um in their in their communities um uh, and i think together um well firstly we're still here you know like um uh we haven't gone broke it you know hasn't been sort of abc debacle um uh mark two um and we sort of call that our stability goal um Mm -hmm. Uh, we managed, and we managed to pay our debt, our our significant um, bank loan um, back a couple of years ahead of, of schedule. Okay. Which, you know, when 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 we talk internally, we, we sort of say it's a bit like paying your mortgage off early. You've suddenly got all that money that you yeah. were re- previously using to pay off your your debt to in, in, invest back in. Mm-hmm. So, we've been able to um, invest back in um, significantly in professional development for for, for, for our, our people. So we now invest over six million back in on professional development. We've been able to provide um, great op- opportunities. We've been able to develop um, our own practice framework that we've, um, Heather Finlayson, who um, uh, has headed that work up as a member of my executive team, has worked with um, an international thought leaders group that we established with some of the you know top early learning and mm-hmm. um, academics from uh, around the world, and we're starting to em- embed that that practice framework. Is that the endpoint? Is that where we want to be? No, it's a sort of um, it's it's a first important step. Um, when we started, we weren't doing particularly well on the um, external assessment in terms of quality and ratings. Mm-hmm. Um, less than half of our centres were getting meeting or exceeding. Um, but now, five or six years on, um, I think last quarter, every single centre that was assessed got meeting or exceeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're well on the way um, towards our 2020 target, which is for half of our centres to get to get um, exceeding. When we started, we had less than 200 graduate teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we were very much on the journey from childcare or babysitting to early learning and care. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've got over 900 graduate teachers and some amazing um, edu- educational leaders. Um, and we're able to invest back um, uh, in a targeted way in our centres in more disadvantaged communities. So we've established what we call our ECHO centres. Mm-hmm. Um, and our ECHO centres, that stands for Enhancing Children's Outcomes, and right. um, we um, provide a whole um, set of wraparound su- services and, and support. So not just early learning. Mm-hmm. Um, we have access to speech th- uh, therapists, uh, family support 
uh, workers, we connect up with the health system, we've got some fantastic partnerships. Um, uh, we set up a partnership in South Australia with Food Bank where they give us food, where we provide additional mm-hmm. nutrition and food for those families um, uh, and, um, and the learnings that we're getting um, and we've done deep, deep professional development in, the, in those centres to support our, our teams to work um, with more vulnerable families, with families in more vulnerable um, circumstances. Um, but we know that you know families in vulnerable circumstances don't, don't just sort of sit in certain economic mm-hmm. um, postcodes. So the, the learnings from those centres we're spreading across our, our, mm. our, our networks. So we've come a long way on you know our quality goal, our inclusion goal. Um, because um, we really do aspire to ensure that all children have access to high quality early learning. So we've developed, a, I think, quite a strong culture in terms of not turning children away, no matter mm-hmm. how challenging they may well be to support and then, uh, then our, our stability goals. Mm. So, okay. Yeah. And how much of this strategy is determined internally versus looking externally, perhaps across the world at best practice? Um, We've fort- I've been fortunate in that um, the time I came into this role coincided with the government's um, introduction of the Early Years Learning Framework mm-hmm. and their um, new standards that they, they had set, which, to be honest, provided a really good springboard for us to actually you know, to say to people, well, you know, we, we need to meet the national quality standards and we don't just want to meet them, we want to, 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 to exceed them. So that's actually been very helpful. Um, uh, and our connecting up um, around the world is is helpful. But if I dial forward for the, you know, the next um, five years, and I'm not going anywhere, it's, um, this, I, I sort of feel like we've only just started at, mm-hmm. at, at, at Good Start. That the opportunities are are absolutely tremendous. Um, if we dial forward in in terms of the next um, five years. Um, we can use our scale to actually measure what works, to try new mm-hmm. things, to actually think about um, what does early learning look like in the latter part of the 21st century? Mm-hmm. Uh, what opportunities do technology um, bring? Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't got robots in our centres <laughs> yet, but when we've started scanning, we've seen that there are centres that do. Right. Um, uh, and we've got things called bebops that children can use for coding and things, but mm-hmm. there are actually, um, you know, there are people actually trialling uh, artificial intelligence and, mm-hmm. and robots that can learn adaptively. Um, and so we we're just moving into a phase where we're um, with we're we're calling good future, mm-hmm. um, could start a good future, which is about thinking about um, you know what would an irresistible offer look like for children and families um, uh, that can really you know really have an impact on. Um, on people's people's lives, whether mm-hmm. it be changing the life trajectory of a child, um, uh, and, I don't, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not suggesting that just because someone comes to a good start centre, their child's life trajectory will get uh, changed. But there are moments when we can see that sort of happening on a on a on a day to day basis, where mm-hmm. children who um, otherwise people wouldn't have picked up developmental issues, mm-hmm. or uh, children have access to learning that they otherwise wouldn't. Have, wouldn't wouldn't have um, wouldn't have had so so there are opportunities for us to 
to um, to look at what works, to partner um, with academic institutions to do more research, to actually not just um, test things that have already been done before, but to try new things. And, mm-hmm. I, and I don't mean, you know, as some big social experiment, but I mean as, you know, as any innovative organisation sure. that's continually, you know, looking to, 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 do, to do new things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so you've had your five years or six years yeah. in a row. You've got a few things yeah. done. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned briefly in passing, uh, you know, if you're not going anywhere. So you see, in terms of your own professional future for the next five years, uh, remaining and, and driving the business further into the future? Uh, I, I do. Um, and we're also at a stage where we are thinking about do we need a different way of working right. for this ne- next phase of our organisation to support mm-hmm. what it is we aspire to do and be. So. I'm very interested in learning more myself about organisations that are laterally connected okay. um, as opposed to hierarchical. Okay. We're really quite hierarchical here. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd like to think we're not, but we are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got lots of layers in our organisation. We've got lots of rules, even though we've got an awful lot less than ABC had. Um, uh, and we had a big drive on what we called Empower Centre Leadership. When I look around the world, I can see... You know there are examples, and some of them are quite extreme, like Bertzog in um, in the Netherlands, the um, uh, the um, district nursing organisation that are all self-managing teams, and there's 700 of them, and they're totally flat, mm-hmm. and they. Um, uh, so I think we can, you know, there are insights and, and learnings from others. I think technology gives us. Um, new opportunities in terms of the way we run as an organisation. Um, uh, assurance can be done in very different ways now to, you know, mm-hmm. how it used to be able to be done. So I think there's some interesting pieces, mm-hmm. not just about um, the nature of our early learning and care, but also about who we are as an organisation and mm-hmm. how we work, um, and that. You know, and that isn't just top down. Julie, go off. You know, have a think, um, and come back and let's do it. It's actually that's actually work, working together on on our, our good future. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a three month sabbatical. I was um, just going to ask. Yeah, yeah. So right. yeah, you come back because you could, Richard. You could have said to me, well, what about your five years taking a year <laughs> yeah. out? You know, <laughs> I didn't know. That was my next question. Um, uh, but I'm going to take a a, a three months sabbatical between okay. um, mid-April nice. um, for, 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 for three months. Learning yeah. or recreation? Um, I'm still trying to work out. I started off and I was filling it all with learning mm-hmm. um, and one of my fantastic board members, um, uh, I mean that's another reason why I am you know, very happy here at Good Start. I've got an amazing um, board, all of whom you know, I have learned a huge amount from. Um, uh, but one of my board members, um, Greg Hutchinson, who's um, former managing partner of, of of Bain, when I was sort of, and he he acts as a coach um, for me um, uh, and works with the chairman in doing my you know performance review um, and is holding me to account in terms of what I do with my with my sabbatical. Um, when I first told him about all the ideas he had, I had, he said, "Are you sure you want to just fill it up with all that?" Stuff and then right. Tommy he had a sabbatical from Bain where he just went and rented an apartment in Venice for three months, and um, uh, and I thought oh interesting, um, uh, um, so I'm 
my thinking at the moment is sort of half and half, you mm-hmm. know, half sort of more relaxation um, and half, you know, going, looking and seeing, but actually leaving enough time in the going, looking, seeing uh, and reading um, and listening to podcasts right. <laughs> like this. And um, I might listen to a few more of yours. I, I have some do. time to do so. Um, and... Uh, um, because you don't actually have to go and see everything. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just about time, and you can actually, you know, watch TED talks, podcasts, sure. you know, in um, in this in this day and age. So, yeah, so that's what my my thinking is. Fantastic. And I and I uh, I do need to also want to think about if there's something else I can do in Queensland. I was very conscious um, when I came here I was still chairing the board of a not-for-profit in Adelaide and I continued doing mm-hmm. that I was um, still on the TIO board in the Northern Territory and I continued um, doing that um, because I wanted to honour those um, commitments but I then was very uh, conscious that I had a big job to do mm-hmm. here and I wanted to stay focused um, uh, internally but I've got a bit more headspace now so i I will think about whether there's um, something outside of early learning and good mm-hmm. start that um, I could um, get in, get involved in, in, in at a board level. Um, probably at a board level. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, probably at a board level. I'm open to options. I, I think you learn from being exposed to different people and mm-hmm. and and different Definitely. things. And I um, I'm. I'm conscious that I've been doing this role for, for, for six years and whilst I was new to the sector and good start, you know, um, I'm I'm not anymore, so mm. I want to just keep my eyes open. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you learn, as a chief executive, you actually learn from, if you're sitting on a, on a, on a board, you, you bring a different perspective. Um, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, it works, works uh, both ways. I'd certainly mm. do... Since I've sat on boards, I do much shorter board papers for my board than, <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> than I did before. Well, Julie, yeah. you've been uh, very generous yeah. with your time this yeah. morning. Before we uh, wrap up the conversation, yeah. from your side of things, uh, you know, given that the audience is predominantly aspiring CEOs and non-executive directors, um, are there any final sort of words of wisdom or things you'd like to leave the uh, listeners with that have been particularly beneficial for you? Um. I think if you if you're if you're an auth- going to be an authentic chief executive, you have to believe passionately and deeply um, in what it, it is you're doing and what your organisation's purpose is, um, because you need that to ground you and your organisation. Mm-hmm. And I think if people get to a point where they don't feel that's the case whether they're an executive or a board member um, or a CEO then I think it's either time to leave and go and do something else Mm -hmm. or to rethink and refocus the purpose Mm -hmm. of an an organisation because we all put a huge amount of energy uh, into these jobs and um, and, uh, you know they're the significant parts of our of our our lives, mm. um, and if that's out of sync, then I don't think that's good for 
people's well-being, you know, um, whether they be the chief executive, the executive, or you know, the people, the people in the in the in the organisation. Um, and my final um, comment, which links to that, would be someone once gave me some really good, what I thought was really good ex- advice, which was if you get to a point where going to work is de-energising you more than it is energising you, then it's time to go and do something else. Mm. It's interesting. Uh, I don't know what your view is, but I would say that there are many, many people who probably understand that at a you know at an intellectual level and yet they don't choose to uh, follow that advice and remain in jobs for much longer than they should do, um, which is a pretty sad situation. I, I think that's true. And, I mean, it's interesting. Um, uh, I'm just looking over at my bookshelf as I'm speaking to you and you'll see there's a pile of books called Jumping Ship, right. um, which are Michael Trail, my chairman's book, and I'm, I'm not deliberately wanted to do a sort of <laughs> plug for his book. Um, but um, reading Michael's book, Jumping Ship, I, I think... Um, uh, I would highly recommend to people. Michael um, was a Macquarie banker who um, jumped ship um, and went to set up so- Social Ventures um, Australia. So he's someone who, right. you know, made that transition. Um, and Rob Koska is another of my board members who's who's done that. And I'm not saying you have to move from the you know corporate private sector to the social purpose sector to get meaning or purpose in 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 your in your job or or your or your life but it has to be be mm. something that mm. that you feel deeply about mm. well i'll certainly uh make uh notes about the various books you've mentioned in the show notes people can click through and, and get access to those so julia i really appreciate your time thanks very much uh for participating and have a fantastic afternoon Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Richard. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Great. Excellent. Thanks again for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Julia. I'm looking forward to having you along on future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a great week.